Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Missy Copeland is a person that every black ballerina wanted to be, still wants to be. At this point, she's sort of the gold standard for the black ballerina. Misty Copeland's story is one that I think all dancers, but more specifically dancers of color, can find inspiration from. She is a legacy in the dance world. She is a trailblazer to all of the little black dancers who needed someone in their life to give them inspiration and dance. Whenever I dance, I feel like I can be myself, I can express myself. Whenever I'm dancing, I'm happy, I just love to dance. Dance to me means growth. Um, I've been dancing since the age of three, and there's never too much you can learn. It's something that you can never really perfect, and it's something that you always work at, and there's continual development and inspiration. Her legacy means to me, it's like looking in a mirror and seeing myself there, because when I talk to all of my friends and they have dancers that they look up to, it's mostly not people of color, but when I think of Misty Copeland, a dancer of color, I just think that's me. I think seeing someone who, like me, had a single mom was able to get what they wanted and what they needed out of life without having to compromise who they were. That means the world to me. As it can be quoted in her book entitled Life in Motion, this is for the little brown girls. <laughs> it's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. And those young people are students at the Jones Haywood Dance School in Washington, D.C. It was founded in 1941 to educate Black youth in classical ballet. And as you heard, Misty Copeland is a hero to those young ladies and to many others. In 2015, Copeland became the first African-American woman ever to be a principal dancer at the American Ballet Theater. By that point, she was already a sensation well beyond the dance world. Her performances drew these huge crowds of new young audiences to this classical form. She'd even been in a Prince video. And this week, we continue a series we're calling Black History Is Now by meeting Misty Copeland. She has thought a lot about the role she plays in the lives of young dancers like those students you heard, in part because she thinks so much about her own mentor. Last fall, she published a memoir called The Wind at My Back, Resilience, Grace, and Other Gifts from My Mentor, Raven Wilkinson. Now, Raven Wilkinson, who died in 2018, she was a Black soloist in one of the most important ballet companies of the 20th century. And Copeland writes about discovering Wilkinson as this other person who carried so many firsts and onlys, and about the friendship they developed. The first time I came across Raven, 
I was in my 20s, you know, still pretty new to being a soloist at American Ballet Theater and really just searching for this sense of identity as a ballerina and belonging in this very white world. And um, I think I was injured at the time. I had like sprained my ankle or something and I was at home sulking on my couch um, (laughs) and decided to turn PBS on and saw this documentary um, on the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. And everything changed, you know, from there. It was seeing this Black woman come onto the screen for the first time, you know, seeing this kind of recognition. And I'd seen other Black ballerinas. I I knew, you know, about Janet Collins and Virginia Johnson, of course, Dance Theater of Harlem. But for a ballerina to exist in the time that she did with one of the most recognizable ballet companies of the 20th century, uh, to see the passion and love and hope that she had when speaking about her experiences, even the the negative experiences of, you know, her life being threatened by the KKK and the injustices that she had experienced in her life and within the ballet community. And yet she still had this undeniable love for the art form and she was still such a champion for it. It just made me look at my life and career so differently. How did you meet? Yeah. So I I had actually just started working with my manager, Gilda Squire, and uh, she's a great listener. And Raven would come up here and there whenever I would do interviews. And uh, Gilda decided on her own to do some research and, and find out who this woman was and, and what, what her deal was. Was she still alive? You know, <laughs> and found out she lived a block away from me on the Upper West Side. Really? Yes. It's really uh, unbelievable. Like, I can't imagine how many times we probably passed each other on the street. Oh, um, <laughs> and Gilda suggested that we do a conversation at the Studio Museum in Harlem. And that was the very first time that I met her in person was the night of the panel discussion. Wow. Um, and we were inseparable ever since. I just, I want to make sure people don't lose track of the unique nature of that meeting. I mean, y- you were the only Black ballerina at the American Ballet Theater for the first many years of your career. Then in 2015, you made history as the first Black woman to be a principal dancer at ABT. That's the first time in 75 years (laughs) at ABT Mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. And I guess I want to underline that connection and what it was like for you, given all of those superlatives and singularity in your life, um, to then come across this person from the 50s, who was in a similarly singular moment. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know that I fully grasped that at the moment that I saw her and heard her speaking, but that that was such a strong connection and understanding of what it is to be alone and, and the only. And yeah, it was the first over 10 years of my career that I was by myself in, in American Ballet Theater. And I needed to have a connection to someone who truly understood what that meant, you know, the emotional and psychological weights that you you carry with that experience. And Raven, I mean, she was a soloist with the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo. To this day, it's rare to see a Black female soloist in a classical company. And she was the first and only, you know, it's not common that a dancer makes it out of the corps de ballet, which is the the lowest rank. It's typically the structure of a company is the corps de ballet, the soloists, and then the principal dancers. And uh, the corps de ballet are the large group of dancers that create the atmosphere, surround the soloists in the center. And Raven 
you know, went through the corps de ballet in a couple of years and became a soloist and, and was doing principal roles as a Black woman. Um, and this story, you know, I, I felt this sense of connection, of course, and that I, I belonged to a community I didn't know really, really existed, but at the same time, this frustration and anger. Mm. Why don't I know this story? This story's erasure was so total that Misty says, at the time she discovered Raven Wilkinson, there wasn't even a Wikipedia page about her. I was working with dancers who who worked with Raven in the company at American Ballet Theater. And it never came up. And there was conversation around me being the only Black woman or only the second ever female soloist of color in the company. And it's mind-blowing to me that those stories weren't even shared with me. She was an afterthought and, and something that people didn't even truly think about, you know, what she did on the stage, but what she was experiencing off the stage that most people would break in 30 seconds. <laughs> well, what did she experience? Raven would be in Alabama, you know, somewhere in the South, and she'd get on the tour bus and the tour bus would be stopped by the KKK and they'd run onto the bus and be searching for the Black person and threatening her life. They'd come onto the stage during a dress rehearsal. Like, these are the things that she was going through before having to step into this space and be mentally and physically and emotionally prepared to perform and also perform for an audience of white people that didn't right. want her there. Like, I, I, it's, it's unbelievable that she was able to perform the way she did. And, and I wish that I would have thought to ask her these things while she was still alive. I, you know, I've mm. asked her friends and roommates, you know, how was she? Like, what type of space was she in when she'd get to the theater? And they were like, oh, it was like nothing happened. She was, she would get prepared. You know, just they never pro. talked about it. Just a pro and go out there and do it. And it's just mind-blowing to me. But uh, it was unbelievable the things that that she witnessed and and went through, which eventually led her to leaving America and going to Holland, where she um, performed the rest of her professional classical career away from America. As with many Black people of that generation. Exactly. Uh, got tired of it. Yeah. Misty Copeland's own story is also remarkable. But before telling it, she cautions people not to indulge their stereotypes about Black athletes and the cliché up-from-poverty narratives. That was not Raven Wilkinson's story, for instance. Then that's not the experience of every Black person in America. It's not you know, all under from... this and less that. Exactly, right. exactly. With that said, <laughs> I grew up in a single-parent home, um, my mother raising six children, and... Uh, extracurricular activities, the arts, sports, whatever it was, like that was the farthest thing from my mother's mind. It was it was keeping us off the street. It was keeping food on the table, roof over our heads, which wasn't always the case. Um, we were constantly moving, I'd say from the time I was born until the age of seven, we had moved like I don't know, 10 or more times and changed schools and sleeping in other people's homes that I didn't know. We were, had lived in motels. So there was just never this sense of like comfort that I could relax. 
And music and dance became the solace for me. Mm. When I heard music, I wanted to move. It was this like beautiful escape. And I grew up watching like BT and VH1 and MTV and seeing music videos. Like that was what I thought dance was. That was my idea of dance. So when ballet was introduced to me, I was like, what is this? Like I'd never heard classical music before. It was all very foreign and I wasn't interested. And it took a lot of pushing and the teacher trying her best to articulate to me that I was a prodigy, that she'd never come across Mm. anyone that was as physically capable, like my body was retaining the information it could physically do these things. Um, but also, uh, you know, mentally, I, I had an understanding and uh, the way to connect the music to my body. And I ended up living with my ballet teacher. Once that teacher did convince Misty she had something, a lot happened fast. Professional ballet dancers typically train from the time they are little kids. But for Misty, after just four years of training as a teenager, she moved to New York and joined American Ballet Theater. Honestly, Prodigy doesn't even describe that. And I was floored that she couldn't hear it when her teacher told her she was special. If anything, like I wanted to not be noticed, I wanted to hide, you know, I I had so much shame around my life and the the way that I grew up, you know, I didn't have a lot of friends because I didn't want them to know that we were scrounging for, for money in the couch cushions in order to like buy food and that, you know, we didn't have a home and... So just this thought of like standing out or being special or unique in any way. I mean, I was used to being different, but uh, not kind of with this positive take on things. I mean, I don't think that I understood that until I was an adult. You know, I started to fall in love with ballet and, and I really enjoyed the work. I enjoyed being in the studio. I enjoyed the repetition. I enjoyed this structure that I'd never experienced in my life and I was craving and, um, Um, I kind of held on to all of those things rather than you're naturally gifted. (laughs) But um, yeah, it was really difficult for me to embrace that I was good at something. (laughs) Right, right. It's Notes from America. We'll be right back. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. One of the reasons mentorship is such an important idea to Misty Copeland now is that she can actually point to a number of Black women who have helped her navigate this unexpected life as a superstar classical dancer with a Black body. One of them was actor Victoria Rowell. Now, she has done many things, but she is certainly most famous for her nearly 20 years starring on the daytime TV show The Young and the Restless. And Victoria showed up in Misty's life and just made a profound impact. 
So when I moved to New York City, I had no guidance. There was no one to, like, I moved into an apartment. I didn't know how to grocery shop. I didn't know how, like, I had never lived on my own. I'd never lived outside of, like, this small town in California. I, like, pay your bills, like, manage, <laughs> like, you know, you're feeding your, you were athletes. And, and I didn't know how to do any of this. I grew up eating cup of noodle and, like, Taco Bell. <laughs> um, I had no idea, you know, all that it really took to uh, perform at this level. Um, and it was around that time that um, the company was on tour in, in Hollywood. And uh, I looked on the, the like bulletin board where they, they post like the casting and, and you sign into the theater. And there was a, a note, like this tiny note with my name on it. And I opened it up and it was, um, from Victoria. And, you know, she, just, I think just had, had said a little bit. She didn't say too much, but she was like, you know, I've, um, I've been watching you. I used to be a ballerina. I would love to, you know, have you over to my home and, and just talk, you know, like two black ballerinas. And it was, I was like, what? Like, I'd never been approached, like, <laughs> by anyone, you know, to be, like, a support system, let alone someone who, like, looked like me and had mm -hmm. somewhat experienced, you know, a similar, similar thing. Um, and she had me over to her home that night, and we stayed up all night, you know, talking. Like, the, the importance of um, having that support and understanding of, of what it is to be a Black person, but a Black woman with Black skin and a Black body, you know, embracing the body that I have and that it's going to be look different from the girls around me, but there is a way to be healthy and take care of yourself and, and um, thinking of your, you know, your body as an instrument all of those things, but, um, well, but, but how did she, how did she teach you that? How did, what, what, what do you think? It was having a realistic conversation. You know, it's not, it's not about like sugarcoating it and saying, you know, look, I, I in my heart of hearts, like I knew I was not eating the right things and I was not in the shape that I needed to be in. And it's having those real conversations. It's like, there are certain expectations and things that you have to do to take care of yourself in order to get on stage and get through a, a three hour, four act ballet, mm -hmm. you know, and be in shape and be healthy and take care of yourself. And I think that I didn't really understand what that meant. And she was very um, direct about that. And I think having it come from her, it didn't feel like there were these underlying like racial tones or whatever it was, you know, attached to that. It was, it was, it felt very like straightforward mm -hmm. where I had had a lot of those conversations um, with my artistic staff and it just never felt like it was coming from a caring place. And I felt there was a lot that was wrapped in the, you know, the blackness of my body wrapped into mm -hmm. the things they were saying and how they were saying it. So I, it took mm -hmm. it differently coming from her, but yeah, it kind of opened up how I felt I could have an impact on other people and especially black and brown dancers. Well, as you have now become a mentor yourself, what kinds of things are you hearing from young people who aspire to be classical dancers? Like, what do you hear in terms of their challenges and their inspirations? You know, it's changed so much. I feel like before it was like, how do I even get my foot in the door and even have an opportunity to show what I can do. And now the conversation is like, what do I do once I'm in the room? Mm. Um, it's a different time. You know, even 
after the last two, three years, uh, a lot has shifted in, in the ballet world. And and then you add like social media onto it. And so a lot of it, I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm so far <laughs> removed from like, <laughs> you know, um, but but it's it's so empowering to see young people want to make an impact and have a voice. I think that's the difference is that whereas before a lot of black and brown dancers were terrified to even step into that position of of saying something, of sharing their experiences out of the fear of not even being given an opportunity because they'd be reprimanded. And now it's like, what platform do I use? How do I get my voice? They want to be activists. They want to move the needle. So yeah, it's a very different time. And it's just, it's fascinating to be in this position and having seen so much growth and change within our community in the ballet world. And I'm just proud that I have, you know, so many dancers that are doing the work that I've been fighting for and, and doing for my my entire 25-year career. In those 25 years, you performed some iconic parts, but in the book, you describe this vivid moment with Raven Wilkinson that happened right after you danced Swan Lake at the Met, which yeah. you were the first Black woman to do that. Tell us about that moment and why it sticks with you. Mm. <laughs> this is probably one of the most like memorable not just in my mind, but like in my body and in my emotions um, of my time with her. You know, Raven talked about this want to perform at Lincoln Center as a classical ballerina, and she never got the opportunity to. She had auditioned for the Metropolitan Opera Ballet and was not accepted, which is unbelievable. And, you know, in 2015, she was able to step onto the stage of the Metropolitan Opera House after my debut in Swan Lake as, as the lead, as Odette Odile, and present me flowers. And it was this kind of outer body experience. Like it was, she was actually passing the torch to me. Mm. And she was standing on the stage of the Met where she should have been able to dance. And she undulated her arms like a swan and the audience just erupted yes. into like screams and applause. And and I just remember like crying and falling to my knees and trying to pass the flowers back to her and she's passing them back to me. <laughs> <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> it was... Um, one of the most special moments of just giving her her flowers. Quite literally. <laughs> Quite literally. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. You can follow us wherever you get your podcasts. And by the way, later this week, we'll put a longer version of the conversation with Misty Copeland in our feed. So check it out. You can also follow us on Instagram at Notes with Kai. Mixing and music by Jarrett Paul. Milton Ruiz is our live engineer. Our team also includes Karen Frillman, Vanessa Handy, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. 
Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I am Kai Wright. Thanks for spending this time with us. 